This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hi, this is Ray Cairns talking to Sam Elliott on the Right Way Podcast about my second book, Dying to Know. Yeah, thank you so much for introducing today's episode to the show there, Ray Cairns, our esteemed guest. And hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. With me, your host, Samuel Elliott, person whom you just heard introducing today's episode is, of course, today's guest, the lovely Ray Cairns, the person who I've had the incredible privilege of speaking to for the second time on the program for the eagle-eyed or eagle-eared listener. Um, Ray and I spoke when her debut crime novel, The Good Mother, was uh, released uh, some time back and now I got the chance to speak to her on the latest episode about her second novel Dying to Know uh, Fret not for those that worry about spoilies you probably know from listening to other episodes of the show of similar genre that I never spoil or I endeavoured to never spoil anything within the uh, stories in which we discuss those kind of cracking crime thriller novels with twisty turns so fret not for that we do not uh, do any spoilies we do not discuss anything of a sensitive nature in relation to what happens with the plot but the plot uh, the basic outline for dying to know is as follows so the central character is Genevieve Leeton uh, 12 years ago she uh, received a frantic phone call from her sister Amber who had been abducted uh, so she was in the boot of a car when she was making this phone call and then jump forward 12 years later uh, Amber has still not been discovered or recovered or her whereabouts determined and Amber is still very much on the case using her biting or burgeoning journalistic skills as well as at the same time kind of stepping into what she believes to be sort of her motherly duties albeit for Amber's children uh, Charlie and Lily and sort of clashing with their father as well so trying to uh, do her best to kind of raise two kids uh, while clashing with their father and at the same time kind of uh, endangering herself embroiling herself in this plot to find out what has happened to her sister Amber. So yeah, that's the the novel that we discussed. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to Ray on the show. So without any further ado, I'd like you all to give a big digital round of applause to Ray Cairns discussing with me her second crime thriller novel, Dying to Know. Ray Cairns, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way Podcast program this evening. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Second time. I'm the one that feels like being privileged. So, yeah, and particularly you've been such a good sport, so patient when I was freaking out low-key then about the the technical difficulties, but these are the things that kind of happen and we persevere. So, Ray, you know the question I always like to ask, never changes even if I have repeat guests, is where did the idea originate for Dying to Know? Please tell us. Um. Okay, so I was listening to a young woman talk about the impact on her family when her brother went missing and on her and how Mm. completely upended their lives. And that got me to thinking that quite often uh, novels about missing people are about the actual missing person or very much focused on the detective investigating the case. And I really wanted to focus on the people left behind and Mm. how that event had changed them um, and how they dealt with it over time. So I had that and then I was driving to a... um, an event and uh in front of me a car stopped and it was a Camry you know with the old style boot yes and uh 
my imagination kicked into play and started thinking, what if someone's in that boot right now? Like, why would they be there? How did they get there? Can they get out? Can you stick your hand out through the taillight? Because um, I'd heard of that. And then that got me thinking, oh, that's a great start to the story. Like, I can do that. That's that solid start. And then at this, around the same time, my husband had started riding a motorbike um, and I was going on the back on rides with him and I was just intrigued by this whole subculture of people that I hadn't ever really come into contact with and it was people from all walks of life from weekend bikers like us to people really into the scene you know there was one guy that even had like a front pack and a, um, a helmet for his dog and and then you kind of then you move into those that have dipped their toe into the outlaw biker scene so I, I kind of drew these three things together um, oh, wow. was, was where the idea came from. Yeah, okay, interesting. For me, I feel like dying to know at its core was about sort of familial obligation or the way in which one perceives familial obligation, particularly in regards to sort of Jen taking on the role of a mother to Charlie and Lily while kind of trying to lead the searching or never giving up the searching for Amber and finding out what's happened there. What do you think... What was it that captured your imagination of that, Ray? Because it didn't you didn't mention it with the the first question, but in terms of what sort of I felt was the core of the story, there is this sort of familiar obligation of Jen essentially wanting to find out what's happened to Amber at the same time to also raise Charlie and Lily as best she sort of can while sort of not being legally recognized as a mother. What's the sort of um pitfalls that yeah, sort so of capture your imagination? A couple of things in there. Like I really um I decided from the outset that I wanted to explore the theme of belonging. Mm. Um, and that, that Jen, like the belonging in a family and belonging at work and be- belonging to a bikey gang, what, what's that pull? What's the power of belonging? Mm. Um, and each of the characters kind of have those moments. And, and Jen's is very much she doesn't feel she belongs in the role of mother mm. because she essentially has great guilt about not helping her sister when she really needed it. And it, she, her sister asked her to go and get nappies from the shop. Jen essentially said, I'm too busy, I'm working, and that's the night that Amber went missing. Mm. And so Geneva is driven by guilt and shame, and I was interested in kind of how guilt and shame and belonging all form or kind of influence our decision-making um, and, and 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 it doesn't necessarily come from the best best of places when you're coming from guilt and shame. Um, and then I also kind of wanted to, in the relationship between Geneva and Hugh, Hugh's the um, the father of the children, mm. so his, her her brother-in-law. I wanted to kind of explore that that relationship of um, like coercive control and gaslighting, but one step removed, because mm. it gave me an opportunity to really, I guess, show why people wouldn't why someone doesn't leave a relationship like that so even though Geneva's just the aunt and um she doesn't necessarily have a a legal responsibility to the children she wants a responsibility to the children she she feels that she is their their carer their primary carer their protector but she actually has no legal recourse Mm. and so I really wanted to delve into that idea of Hugh Hugh has the financial control the legal control and 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 kind of play with that a bit and see what that brought out because because Geneva in every other aspect of her life is this strong go-getter mm. um and and very assertive 
But when it comes to Hugh, she has to walk a line or she's going to lose access to the children. Um, and so, yeah, she lets him get away with more than perhaps um, we want her to um, as readers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and also just really quickly as well, you just sort of piped my interest in terms of when you also mentioned about the coercive control, because that was done, that was sprinkled in there nicely as well. I mean, I remember there was one element of finding a dress. Again, I don't think this is a huge spoiler, but finding a dress and then realizing that Amber hadn't worn that, you know, in kind of like the last mm-hmm. year. So that very sort of allusions to sort of financial dependence and how that can then make someone struggle to potentially leave a sort of toxic or coercively controlled relationship as well as the you know more subtle sort of versions too and then yeah i mean because so much time i think it's like is it, is it 12 years or something like that yeah, that's, that's, yeah has taken since this ember has disappeared and then subsequently so then you've got the problems that kind of would naturally arise i would imagine when you have such a sort of motherly figure uh as jen taking seemingly taking over in terms of that and then i think there's one sort of scene early on i think it's charlie i'm pretty sure it's charlie he calls her mom and she's like you already have a mum," and then that's kind of a little too later, which I won't spoil, but yeah. That, that's of... her challenge in the novel is is <clears throat> acknowledging that she has very much. So Charlie was, I think, nine months when when his yeah. mum went missing and Geneva stepped into that role, um, but she never is prepared to, she doesn't think she deserves to be <clears throat> able to step into her sister's shoes. Um, and yeah. In terms of the time period that's elapsed as well, I mean, 12 years is a long time, but there's still this sort of, uh, it's frozen in time as well because there's this inability to sort of move on and grieve and and, and sort of mourn properly because there's the whereabouts of Amber have not yet been, you know, what's happened yeah. hasn't been established and so it's almost impossible to get over in any sort of regard. And I mean, all of the mention I wrote down quotes as well about it in terms of um, Jen having to keep believing Amber was out there alive and well, Amber's always like a hovering spirit. I think Lily mentioned saying something that she'd hoped that she turned up one Christmas and then Jen struggling with the finality of it all. Tell me about that as well, Ray, in terms of one's inability and a family's to kind of get over something when they don't actually know what's happened to a loved one that's gone missing or been abducted. Yeah, so look, a lot of... A lot of my novels come from a place of research. I do a lot of research before I start mm. them. So I spent a fair bit of time researching what it was like for families when someone went missing. And there's, mm. it's, there's, it's this sense of not having any, it, when you don't know what's happened, you, you can't have hope, but you do have hope, but you, you, you are, you're tied into this kind of moment in time that you can't always move on from. And, um, People talked about it was more in the in the moments of like just simple moments, mm. like um, you know going to a supermarket and picking up the wrong, like picking up pieces some cereal or something that mm. that the missing person used to love, and then realizing that they're not there now. And it was the little things that 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 really um, would upend them in 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 the day, and that that really just interested me. And and so I had two children, one who didn't really know the mother he was nine months old but the Mm. other the daughter Lily was four and she's got memories but some of them are told memories and photos and trying to hold on to those that relationship as well um so yeah there's there's it's there's the different layers of how some you know I've got I've also explored how how their mother Geneva and Amber's mother dealt with it which was you know a very different way of dealing with mm. someone going missing, but it's very complex, and I think it's really, really challenging to to ever get that hope fully out 
of, of your mind. What about the, the the dogged way in which Jen pursues what's happened to Amber, particularly when it becomes increasingly obvious that she's sort of endangering herself with all these sort of underworld characters as well as kind of all of that. But but there's I think there's one point. I think I think it's it might have been a conversation between her and Tobias, and they talk about how or she talked sorry, it might be of Tony, actually a friend Tony, and she's saying yeah. how uh who are you doing this for? And well, I think no, I think Jen is the first one to assert and say, I'm doing this, you know, for the kids so they don't know the truth. And then I think Tony then question says, Are you doing it for them or for yourself? You know, because that's that sort of burgeoning journalistic sort of investigative nature. But what yeah. do you think that is, Ray, in terms of uh the balance between finding the answers for seemingly to find out exactly what's happened, as well as this sort of um insane kind of goes back 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 to that point of being driven by guilt. Mm. Um and and her believing that she is the reason that Amber went missing. So initially she thinks that Amber must have just gone missing and if she had been there, if, if Geneva had been there instead because Geneva's taller and bigger and kind of a bit more Amazonian and, and her sister Amber is petite and, and little, she thought that they wouldn't take have taken her. Mm. Um, and then it was a so, and then as you know, the story goes on, you start to think, oh, there's all sorts of different ideas of, of why she could have gone. Uh, why she could have been taken but I think when she real there's a point where she believes the police aren't stepping up um, in the investigation when there's new evidence that's been discovered and it's that it's the not being able to let go that there may never be a solution that there may never she she's driven by that guilt and I think partially I hope also that that perhaps it wasn't her fault Mm. um yeah, so she's she's got that journalistic drive as well of wanting to know the truth, and 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 so there's a few different things at play for her. There's definitely a few things at play, and in terms of like we've mentioned, talked about sort of um, taking over the mantle of motherhood, as it were, or something having you know potentially that being powered by the wrong reasons of you know guilt or something. But then in terms of still taking over those duties and trying to juggle that, and. One of my she intensely elements. loves those children, though. She, she does. loves those she, children beyond She doesn't anything. do. No, absolutely no question about that. I mean, there's, you know, time and time again, there's small scenes throughout which definitely establish that and show the banter and the way in which they speak. I remember there's one point when Charlie talks about saying, I didn't lie. I, did, I just didn't. I, t- I spun the truth or something like that. There was one element of that, multiple things. And then they obviously there's, there's natural sort of team clashes that happen as well with Lily as well. The thing I liked and the thing that sometimes I struggle with as a writer in terms of making sure that all the elements that you first opened up with are there and recurring throughout. So what mm-hmm. I thought you did really well around what I liked was that there is throughout the investigation, so there's like moments where I think I think there's one example where um, Jenna's looking at some CCTV footage from the night, but then she's also doing the laundry or there's other elements of chasing down leads and then that leads into not being able to, you know, pick Lily up, Lily up on time and all these sort of things. So tell me about that because that was obviously something that you did constantly think about as well and made sure for that sort of just right level of authenticity in terms of this sort of uh, mother, albeit Jen raising the children yeah. while also doing the investigation. Look, I think... Um... I like to write about ordinary people yep. thrown into extraordinary circumstances, and 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 the the, the day to day life is it, it, it keeps going no matter what's happening in the background. Um, and and those details can kind of reveal a lot about character, and I enjoy that. I enjoy looking for those moments, those quieter moments, or those flashing moments. I guess you know where mm. you still do need to pick a child up from school, even if you you know just. 
discovered some incredible information or you've just come from something that's really quite um climactic situation mm. then you've got to go and pick a child up from school or or yeah doing the washing or doing the cooking or, or that it, it, that's life mm. life is all of that and and it interests me to see to kind of explore that how people deal with all the varying levels of life no matter how i guess dramatic a situation can get because it is a thriller but you have those quieter moments you've got to eat you've got to wear clothes you've got to you know you do place you mentioned about how Jen loves um, Charlie and Lily, and there's one point as well. I thought it was quite nice. It wasn't a particularly large element, but I still wanted to talk a little bit about it because I thought it was quite nice overall. But in terms of, I think there's one point that's mentioned about how Jen sort of bonded with her dad over bikes, and then there's mm-hmm. a scene as well, and kind of like a somewhat, somewhat of a slot plot between Jen and Charlie sort of bonding over the, I think she's rest, restoring dad's bike or something. And I think it's particularly interesting because there's something that seems to be particularly with restoring uh, cars and, and motorcycles and motorbikes that people seem to have this sort of generational sort of connection with, even if they're not necessarily have all that much in common and personalities. What do you think that was, Ray, or what sort of captured your attention, your imagination with that that you wanted to explore within that? Um, look, I think if something is a passion like mo- motorbike riding, which Jen's father rode motorbikes and she now rides a motorbike, I-, I think when there's that passion, that that can be a point of connection, even if there is a generational gap or mm. there's a so um, Jen and Amber's mum and dad split um, when you know, and but she, that was her way of staying connected to her dad was mm. through the bike. And that's how she knows how to connect. So that's how she was bringing Charlie into it. And he's obviously interested. Um, And I did, like, I did a fair bit of um, research into the whole motorcycle scene as well. Mm -hmm. And, And that kind of, like I said before, subculture and people I spoke to talked about learning about bikes from their grandfathers and their fathers. And I will say it was much many more men involved than women mm. in the ones that I spoke to. Um, although there are more and more women starting to ride bikes now. But yeah, it was it it, it really struck me that that passing it on down the generations. And even like in um outlaw motorcycle clubs, quite often you'll find families in it and generations of family. It's kind of like that's that's where you're expected to join up. Um, so yeah, that that interested me, that dynamic, you know, and then you've got a whole other aspect with Hugh trying to follow in his family's footsteps, you know. So I like mm. looking at generations and, and families and, and how that works. But yeah, the bike thing that I really loved writing that scene, writing that scene, because it was just a, a way that she really connected with with Charlie. Yeah, it was one of my favorite scenes. Tell, tell me, Ray, because that was that sort of dovetailed anyway, because I did I definitely couldn't possibly speak to you without bringing up the subject of the the research that you've gone into with the the bike the bikey sort of culture because I feel that th- there could be an element of not wanting to do too much research too much boots on ground but then I remember from the your launch night that I think that you mentioned that you had done research and I'm dying to know dying to know <laughs> what the what sort of research you did to make it so authentic with the bikies because also just just completely on a side note there i must say i feel like i think that you've achieved it organically through the writing of the process but like some of the bikies are nicer than some of the the more presentable kind of squeaky clean seemingly well-to-do characters yeah that's obviously something that was anyway i digress because I'm, I'm answering for you but tell me tell me the <laughs> um look i think the thing with the bike research i began like so i I knew I, I'd met all these people mm. and 
And I kind of also knew in the back of my mind how the bikey, like the infighting between the outlaw motorcycle gangs had spilt onto the streets of Sydney, you know, with the Milpera Massacre and then oh, yeah. the um, airport brawl, the Sydney airport brawl. I do remember you mentioning that, yeah. And 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 so I, I decided to start with biographies and I did it from a biker perspective and a police perspective and then I kind of went into the um, undercover kind of perspective and then started that that took me off on major tangents. Um, but then I said to my husband, I, I need to get out and, and choose. Would, would you take me to some biker spots, please? <laughs> and I kind of identified places that I thought that, that all sorts of people would hang out and, and it was, you know, pit stops and road, um, roadside cafes and pubs and even like uh, shops where a lot of bikers uh, would go for gear mm. and we would just go and hang out bless him he'd take me and we'd go and hang out and I'd just strike up a conversation with anyone that would give me the time of day and mm. people love ultimately people are really interesting every person is interesting to talk to and if you can kind of get them to 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 offer up themselves a bit more I guess um, and and they were generous and and it was it was think that that was kind of where I learned about oh my grandfather and my father did this and you know and and talked about the bikes and and what appealed to them about that whole scene and everything. But then I got lucky and I I um, got the chance to talk with an ex rebels bikey gang member. Mm. That gave me a lot of insight and gave me a lot of color to the characters. Um, even just something as simple as just listening to the rhythm of his language mm. and the word choice and and all that as a writer that was like gold you know I was and and just I, I think it's really important to me in in my books that each of the characters driven by their own story they're the hero yep. of their own story and they're they're not flat characters that they're, they're they're round they they've they've got motivators They've got people that they love. They've they've got things that they want, things that they value. So while I might not agree with the outlook biker scene, for them, like they had different reasons for joining and being a part of of that scene. Um, and a big part of it comes back to belonging. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't, if you you're on the fringe of society and and you you feel rejected by society, then you know a, a group, an organization that is a brotherhood that was formed, you know, after the world wars to to find a way to belong in a society that didn't accept, you know, returned soldiers. And that's kind of the, where the culture of all that began. Um, yeah, I can see the appeal of it and I can see they they had their own set of rules and and I guess the standards they hold each other to. So that was important to me to have that color in there that that just to not have stereotypes I guess to play a bit with that because people are people no matter who you're talking to they've you know they they've got a lot to them they're not just a flat flat character definitely and I mean yeah like I said I think that because the characters have been so well developed and because you've done this research and that shines through. I think that that makes them, because it's, it's. I think it's so easy for people to maybe catch a couple of episodes of Sons of Anarchy or to see some, you know, archetypal type bikies and then say, yep, that's that's good enough. But then if you, if you, if you did that, 
then I mean you wouldn't do that because obviously you've done all this research and stuff like that. That would be such a disservice because I think people, even the those that have never kind of um I think most, you know, God fearing people haven't maybe had that much experience of actual outlaw motorcycle members. Um, but they'd still be able to go, okay, well, that doesn't ring true. But to actually do the research and then to go and meet people uh, has just added all this sort of colour um, and depth to the characters that I think kind of shines through, particularly with the bikies. With the research, you t- you mentioned it as well, right, at, um, at your launch in terms of kind of corralling the research into into this narrative. I think you said something about having a, a laptop open that has research and there's a laptop that has the actual story. Do you find that difficult? Because I've, I'm always interested to see when people, particularly if they do so much research and it's all it's all good stuff. Yeah. How do you decide what goes into the story and what doesn't? Particularly when this. Uh, look, so the hardest thing is to decide to stop researching because mm. I just I could do it for years. I love it. Um, I'm not a plotter. Oh, you're not. So I, no. Answer. So the research for me is the is it kind of. It's funny, your subconscious kind of brews the, the work. And yep. so I start I start with a, a moral question. You So I had the idea for the story, which as I was explaining, you know, I had the, the three points before about yep. the, the opening and all that. And then I have a moral question. Um, so for this one it was, you know, is uncovering the truth worth the price you and your loved ones might pay? So you can play because we always, we're always like, oh, truth is so important. Truth is everything. But you know, sometimes you can un- uncover truths that are hard to live with. Oh, yeah. um, and then I kind of, I did decide on a, a, a big theme, like the biggest, bigger theme for me was belonging because I, I wanted to weave that in to each of the characters to mm. have that sense. I mean, even Lily, who's the teenager, has that trying to belong with her peers and 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 how all that fits. But even you can use it in setting you know, like plonking Geneva who rides a motorbike and, and leathers in the middle of, you know, a very upper-crust suburb in Balmoral, she instantly doesn't belong. See, there's all sorts of things you can play with. So for me, I have the moral question, I have that, the um, theme, I do the research and then I sit down and start writing. Mm. And it's funny that all those things come together and things come out that I'm not sure, I haven't decided it's going to come out on the page, and it does, and I will. I'll run out to my husband and go, you'll never believe what just happened. It's, I find that, I find that a really exciting part of writing. It's terrifying as well because you don't necessarily know where you're going, but it's, um, it's exciting and it's, it's that, how all those things come together and that's why I read the paper a lot while I'm um, writing because I find things from current affairs slip in mm-hmm. and stuff, yeah. Well, what I was going to very powerful. Well, related to that, I mean, what I was going to ask because we've already talked about, and because I'm very fortunate enough to have already had you as a guest on the show before talking about the Good Mother. So, what about in terms of the writing of this book? Because I can't ask you again about you know if you face this crossroads with the with your you know writerly career in terms of considering giving up, etc. Now, particularly with the second book, I'm always interested to know as to if the process changed, if it's something that's more challenging, if it was. Less challenging. How was it? So, was there was there any difference between the two? So book one, I had as long as I wanted to write. Yes. Yep. I wasn't even when I started out sure. It wasn't in my head that I was going to publish. That wasn't mm. that wasn't my thing. Um, so I, it took me about five years to write book one from kind of writing, getting it to getting it traditionally published. Book two, I had a year, um, and that was so it's a totally different time pressure. I I had a sense of knowing the mistakes that I'd made first time round and I'd okay. learned a lot in the five years, which was a positive 
but it was also a challenge because yep. I knew the mistakes I'd made. So I kept worrying every time I was writing, particularly because I'm not a planner, um, how I was kept worrying that, that I would write myself into a corner. Oh, is this the wrong decision? Is this the right decision? So mm. I had to really learn to shut that critic up that was on my shoulder mm. screaming at me and just go, just let me get the words on the page. Then I'll deal with that. So it's the first draft. I found the first draft. And also with my this between book one and book two, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. So book one I hand wrote um, and then typed in the computer. Book two I used voice to text. Okay. And I had to really train myself because it's a different, I don't know if you've noticed the difference when you hand write versus typing on a computer. Oh, def- it's a different definitely. pathway. Mm-hmm. And again, speaking it was another new. So it took me about three months to really get the hang of saying the story in the way it sh- I want, in which I wanted it to. And then, of course, it was very dialogue heavy. So mm-hmm. the, the difference in the process was that my second draft, I really had to layer in much more setting and make sure I was orienting the reader to time and place. Um, so it was smoother and quicker, the process. Part of the quicker was because I was voice to text so I think I did 60,000 words in a month but but it's voice to text so it's just yeah. talking and clearly I can talk so mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like it wasn't but it it, it was the editing became um was a, a you know I really had to put the work oh you always have to put work in with editing but it was um under under a much quicker process um but then I also knew with this one that I had a professional editor at my back who would pick up yep. the mis- any mistakes I'd made so it's I don't know. I did definitely have second book syndrome. Like it, yep. I just felt like it was expectation that I didn't feel that was out there. Obviously for book one. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a funny old career. This. <laughs> yeah, it is, and the and the, the second book syndrome is, is is a real thing, and that's why I like, I, yeah. like I wanted to ask you about it because. So did you edit as well using the, the speaking software? No, I can't edit doing that. But so I've got a standing desk, so I up and down, up and down. That's where I have the three screens up. So I have okay. a, a screen of research. Um, I'll have a screen of um, the notes mm. that I need to address and then I work in Scrivener. So I have a screen of Scrivener with the, the, the scenes. So what um just for this just for just for the, the people in the back, what is the um what do you feel? Um, in, encompasses a second book syndrome, right? Like, what do you think that that's like? Is, do, do you think that that's is that something that's kind of tied intrinsically of imposter syndrome? Is that something to do with, like you said, like the the major change in the sort of time frame and how there's like a sort of luxury of time with a debut novel, and then once you've got published, and you know that halves or is a fraction of the time. What do you think that the second book syndrome is, or what do you think that there's a greatest problem with the second book syndrome? I think for me was you you know the mistakes you made yep book one and you hear the voices of of that like it's hard to just just cut all of that out and go I'm just writing what I want to do mm. the the creative joy to just do it and it's it's different there's different pressures so I think it's that I think the big challenge is to quieten that critic. And the other the other authors I've spoken to that have had their second books were exactly the same. It was like just needed to you know shut it up, sit, make them sit in the back seat and be quiet. <laughs> you know, while you get on and get that first draft because you've got it. You know that first draft is is on you telling the story to yourself. Oh, yeah. 
you know, when you, and, and so getting that down on the page so you've got something to work with. I think the editing side of it, I knew better how to do it. Mm-hmm. So that was an advantage of second book. But getting that first draft down, and it's funny, like I'm in my third book now and it's the same, like it's be quiet to the critic, just get on and get this story down and, and then I can work with it, you know. What's the, with your first draft, I don't know if you're anything like me, but my first drafts are like stupid word count, like 150, 160,000 words. Is that you or are you like, no, like you're reasonably? No, my first, so yeah, the second book definitely blew out. Yeah. It was, at, um, uh, I think at 130,000, so it's now 90. Yeah, well. Um, and I ended up kind of cutting out a whole subplot and because, you know, no, nobody needs to read a 130,000 word thriller um, and, and really tighten it. That yep. was the, you know, I had to come back and tighten it. But when I was finding, because I guess when you're not, when you're writing your way into the story, it's also sometimes, yeah, you've got bits in there that you just need to lose. Um, and it's that, it, that, that's, you don't want to lose the wrong bit. And that's where it's amazing <laughs> to always have an editor or beta readers, somebody else read it. Yeah. Definitely. Spot on. I'm so glad that you pushed through uh, and, and and conquered and thwarted that second book syndrome because uh, it's very real because um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and reading Dying to Know and getting to talk to you all things Dying to Know on the show tonight. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. So everyone, there you have it. That was me and Ray Cairns discussing her second crime thriller novel, which is now out available in all bookshops, Australia-wide, nationwide, worldwide, Dying to Know. Uh, so that was Ray Cairns discussing Dying to Know with me on the show. And thank you so much to Ray for talking with me on the show about Dying to Know. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to her as it is always. Uh, and while I'm obviously in the thanking mood, thank you so much for you, to you, dear listener, for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program, as well as, yes, you know exactly what I'm going to be saying next, which is to be listening to the ever-proliferating back catalogue of the show. Thank you very much for doing that as well. If you haven't already, then be sure to go back and listen to that ever-proliferating back catalogue because there's a, it's a lot of episodes there stretching back now from November, October, November 2020 up until now. I've spoken to the better part of a hundred, uh, nearly a hundred guests. I think well, well over 50, uh, well over 60, I reckon. I haven't done the counting. I haven't done the math, to be honest with you, but it's, cl- it's closer to a hundred than it is to not a hundred. So yeah, wild when you think about those numbers and the uh, people I've been so privileged to speak to. It's been an absolute joy. Uh, so yeah, thank you so much to you for listening to this episode and all others. If you haven't already, be sure to give a cheeky follow on Spotify or Apple iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this on, as you can listen to it on all of those. Uh, and in the interim, also be sure to follow my personal uh, author page on Instagram as well as the shows. So the former is at Samuel underscore Elliot, T underscore author, A-U-T-H-O-R. And then the shows page is all one word, the at the right way podcast so yeah give both of those a follow on the instagrams and then also be sure to keep abreast of everything that's been going on with the show via that method as well because i've got a few not many but i've got a few guests coming up for the rest of the year and in the interim obviously I'm going to be continuing to work on my own novel chip chipping away at that what a process it is uh but yes there is uh there is light at the end of the tunnel i'd like to think but uh in the interim thank you so much for listening to this episode so check out the others, tell everyone about it. And until we unite again, I bid you farewell.